I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle Eastern North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. We still today have what are known as the president's doomsday planes. One of these planes is on a runway, its engines are turning, and it could launch in 12 to 15 minutes to rendezvous with the president wherever he is. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Continuity planning is a necessity for any organization exposed to international risk, but no one does it quite to the degree of the US government. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, Chief Security Officer Fred Burton sits down with author Garrett Gruff to discuss his book, Raven Rock, and how the US approached the most complicated of continuity plans during the Cold War, how to ensure the government could survive a nuclear war. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Garrett Graff, uh, who has done a wonderful book called Raven Rock, the U.S. government's secret plans to save itself while the rest of us die. And having been a former special agent, Garrett, I must say this. uh, Your book, Raven Rock, was so captivating because I always wanted to be one of those agents on the helicopters leaving D.C., so could you explain a little bit about uh, your book, Raven Rock, and and what Raven Rock is? So the book is the history of what are known, uh, and you surely know interesting details about these programs that are not in the book, but uh, of what the government calls continuity of government, which are all of the weird and outlandish, in some cases, plans for what would happen in the event of a catastrophic attack on Washington uh, or other national emergency. So this was a series of plans and programs that grew up mostly during the course of the Cold War, aimed at how Washington would, how Washington and the country really would bounce back from a nuclear attack by the Soviet Union, and in more recent years have become more focused on ensuring the U.S. government survives a terrorist attack, a chemical, biological, or nuclear attack on the Capitol. And so this is, you know, this these plans are everything from, as you mentioned, the secret helicopter units that would swoop down out of the sky and whisk U.S. government officials out to mountain bunkers outside Washington. Those bunkers include the the name of the book, Raven Rock, which is the main Pentagon bunker in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, as well as the president's own bunker at Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia, as well as at the peak of the Cold War, more than 100 other bunker facilities and relocation sites scattered all across the country in almost every state in the Union. And then there are plans for how the government would rebuild, you know, up from the U.S. Post Office being the agency that would have been in charge of registering the dead 
and figuring out who was still alive in the United States to the National Park Service, which was the agency in charge of running refugee camps in the event of a nuclear war, because the thinking was that nuclear war wouldn't really affect the national parks. So you would flee out to somewhere like Yellowstone or the Blue Ridge Mountains as, as a civilian and be taken care of there by your friendly neighborhood park rangers. Up to and including, of course, the IRS and their plans for how they would levy taxes and raise national revenue uh, after nuclear war. And these plans, you know, were largely secret during the Cold War. Uh, they've come out a little bit into the public domain now. Uh, but in many ways, these are still some of the most secret programs that the U.S. government runs. I know. It's an amazing story. Uh and we're talking with uh, Garrett Graff today about his book, Raven Rock. And, and I'm also intrigued, uh, Garrett, having lived in both worlds, uh, being a special agent and also writing books and delving into the history of, of some of these uh, kinds of events. I mean, you've done a great job at, at digging up things such as, uh, you know, the acronyms, which I, I simply loved as I went through the book, such as uh, I believe Raven Rock was uh, codenamed Site R. Yep. And the other locations, did they have their own unique code name as well? Yeah, so Mount Weather was known as High Point for much of its time. It's actually a FEMA facility. FEMA is the agency in charge of running these programs and has been with its predecessor agencies going back to Harry Truman's uh, creation of what was then known as the Federal Civil Defense Administration, the FCDA, in 1950. And the scale of these bunkers, um, Fred, I don't know if you can say whether you have ever actually been inside one of them, but they're, they're really incredible to what most people imagine. I mean, the Raven Rock and Mount Weather are really hollowed out mountains with freestanding multi-story buildings inside of them, capable of holding hundreds and in some cases thousands of people uh, underground uh, for weeks or even a month at a time. Little cities inside these mountains for sure. And one of the things that's sort of so interesting about some of this is, you know, it wasn't just these bunkers. You know, we built this whole constellation of uh, helicopters, planes, and even Navy ships, even actually mobile tractor-trailer command centers that were going to be dispatched around the country to ensure that there was always going to be someone who survived nuclear war. And a lot of this infrastructure actually still exists. So we we still today have what are known as the President's Doomsday Planes, which are four converted 747s. Uh, Air Force planes that are kept on alert for the president to be evacuated onto and would uh, allow him to run nuclear war from the sky for up to three days at a time. Um, These planes are known as the the NECAP planes, the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, uh, or by their codename Nightwatch, are still in operation today. I mean, as we are sitting here today chatting, one of these planes is on a runway at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. It is fully staffed. Its engines are turning, and it could launch in 12 to 15 minutes to rendezvous with the president wherever he is. 
That's amazing that uh, that kind of business continuity, uh, U.S. government continuity of operations uh, is still in effect. And uh, Garrett, I think what you did with your story, the I mean, it reads like fiction, but uh, uh, it's it's true to me is the fascinating aspect of just the the scope of planning that that has gone into play with this. And and, and let me ask you a question based on your research. Do you think that this is something that, you know, governments have to plan for worst case scenarios, whether it be Katrina or a 9-11 kind of event? Do you think it's so far over the top that it's just extraordinary or what is your personal views on that? Well, I mean, you certainly understand this as a former special agent. You, you know, no contact, no plan uh, sustains contact with the enemy. And I think it was actually a uh, George Patton quote, plans are useless, but planning is everything. And, and I think that that's really the way that the government approached so much of this during the Cold War was, you know, there, there were so many contingency plans. I mean, backups piled upon backups piled upon backups. Uh, as I said, you know, you had not just the underground bunkers, you had the president's airborne command posts, you had these naval ships at sea, you had uh, at one point armored trains, you had, uh, you know, at, at other points, you know, mobile tractor trailer units. And the, the hope was that sort of something somewhere would work and that someone somewhere would survive and you wouldn't necessarily know who that would be. But, you know, the goal of uh, of it was always to ensure that there was someone left in the chain of what's known as the National Command Authorities, which is basically the people who can launch nuclear weapons. And this is where one of the things that's really hard for people to wrap their minds around is, you know, we have such a limited understanding of what the presidency is. You know, we think of the president as the person that we elect on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November every four years. But the way that the government looks at this is that we're sort of choosing an office of the presidency, that no one person in the presidency matters. You're protecting the office. And so that entails, actually, many people don't realize this, I mean, effectively hundreds of people in various lines of succession because we think about this as, you know, the president, the vice president, the speaker of the House, the president pro tem of the Senate, the secretary of state, and on down through the cabinet. But each of those offices also has their whole own line of succession. And so if there was a catastrophic attack on Washington, you would end up with this sort of odd assortment of government officials from across the country raising their hands and saying, we're the new leaders of the United States. It, it would involve people like the director of the Savannah River Operation Center for the Department <laughs> of Energy in Savannah. It would involve the federal, uh, you know, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Texas, the top federal prosecutor in Texas. It would involve the U.N. ambassador, the U.K. ambassador, sort of these people saying, you know, we're the new leaders of the country and the country can continue on. And that to me is sort of one of the things that's uh, so amazing about these plans is they're, uh, you know, the, on the one hand, these super secret black budget items all focused on, you know, the worst case scenarios for the government. And then at the same time, and you, I'm sure you've had moments like this in your uh, in, in your own government career, the sort of 
odd bureaucratic decision making of the U.S. government. So, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is the Federal Reserve during the Cold War had a bunker in Mount Pony, Virginia, where the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the Fed Board of Governors would all flee and be able to live for weeks or a month at a time. And inside the bunker, they had $2 billion in cash that would have helped sustain the country in the event of nuclear war uh, until the Bureau of Engraving and Printing was back up and printing currency. But a lot of that money was actually in the form of $2 bills, because <laughs> when the government introduced, uh, reintroduced that Thomas Jefferson $2 bill in the 1970s, they realized most Americans don't want or need a $2 bill. And so rather than pulp the money that they had already printed, they shrink-wrapped it and put it inside the Mount Pony bunker, figuring that after nuclear war, America would probably be a lot less choosy about its currency. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. We'll get back to our conversation with Garrett Graff about his book, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die in just one moment. But if you're interested in reading Raven Rock, be sure to check out the links in our show notes. And as we enter a whole new arms race with hypersonic weapons, new nuclear deterrents, and even the potential for a conflict to play out in space, be sure to stay up to speed with our latest assessments on Stratfor Worldview. That's where our analyst team watches these developments and forecasts and their long-term implications for foreign policy. If you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can register for free, limited access, or learn more about individual team and enterprise subscriptions at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to our conversation on the U.S. Cold War plans to ensure the government's survival of a nuclear conflict with Stratfor's Fred Burton and author Garrett Graff. As I was going through Raven Rock, uh, Garrett, I have to say this, that when I started uh, in the early 1980s, these kinds of plans and operations were... Uh, were literally so secret that uh, many of us did not really know the granular nature of these kinds of operations, nor the scope. You know, occasionally you would visit one of these locations and and say, "Oh my goodness, well, what really goes on here?" It's it's that kind of mystique uh, surrounding Area Fifty One, and as you're like living this kind of world and and you're part and parcel to it. It does kind of take a life of its own. And, you know, I said jokingly in the beginning of this, you know, we always wanted to make sure that we were on that plane or that helicopter that was, you know, taking off from Washington in the event that the balloon went up. But uh, what you've done so well in Raven Rock, too, is I think paint the personal nature of this. Like, for example, uh, I'd love to hear your stories about, you know, some cabinet level officials. What are they going to do? Leave their wife behind or their significant other? Yeah, and that's sort of part of one of the things, you know, when you get into talking about how these plans would have actually worked is you have, of course, this incredible intersection between normal human nature and people's roles and responsibilities in their professional government jobs. And so these plans were not geared and were very specifically not geared towards, you know, keeping some master set of Americans alive after nuclear war just for the sake of it. So they were geared only at the officials themselves and not family members. And so this was 
a, a very much known problem. This wasn't a like deep, dark, uh, unintended consequence of these plans. This was identified in the literal first evacuation drill that the government held, Operation Alert 1954, when Dwight Eisenhower and all of his cabinet, and by the way, all of their secretaries, went off to uh, what was then Mount Weather, uh, just as it was beginning to be built, to practice nuclear war. And they left behind in Washington all of their wives, who, uh, and I found this incredible news article about what uh, the reporters described as a very chilly card game that the wives played that afternoon in Washington, waiting for their husbands to come home after realizing that their husbands had no plans to save them for nuclear war. (laughs) Yeah, you can imagine that, right? (laughs) Exactly. And that's still, you know, that's still the plan today. You know, when Congress set up its Cold War bunker at the Greenbrier, which is uh, open to the public now and is an incredible place to visit, a historical artifact, you're going to tour the bunker and the dormitories and the you know the old, the sort of fake Senate chamber and fake House chamber where Congress would have reconvened after nuclear war, and you know they didn't have any room for their families either, and so they finally added some space outside of the bunker blast doors inside the hotel where the bunker was hidden, the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. But you know you. Uh, that would have been a pretty tough conversation too, you know. Okay, honey, I we've made it to the bunker. You got you and the kids sleep up here in the hotel and me and my secretary, we're going to go down into the bunker on the other side of the blast doors. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that went over well. Uh Garrett, I always try to ask this question, the, what is the one thing that really shocked you in putting together Raven Rock? Well, so I think the most interesting aspect of these continuity plans is how quickly the question of how do you preserve America becomes an existential question of what is America. You know, if you're trying to figure out what America needs on the other side, uh, you know, are you trying to preserve the president, the presidency, the three branches of government? And part of the U.S. government's answer, I thought very interestingly, was to come up with these elaborate plans for how to preserve the historical artifacts, the historical totems that have bound us together generation by generation. And so the National Archives had plans for how they would evacuate the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And, by the way, that they would evacuate the Declaration of Independence first before they evacuated the Constitution, um, which I think is an interesting commentary, again, on what is America. Very the much Library so. of Congress had these plans for how they would evacuate the Gettysburg Address before they evacuated George Washington's military commission. And, and one of my favorite details in this entire project was that through – the course of the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers in Philadelphia whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell in the event of a Soviet attack on the United States. And, you know, just sort of thinking about 
you know, we're not a country with a royal family. We're not a country with crown jewels. And, uh, you know, the things that make us America are these institutions and practices that, you know, bind us together generation by generation. And the U.S. government's way that they thought about that during the Cold War, I thought was so interesting. And just to stumble for a minute into talking about modern politics for a second, I think that this is actually a really important conversation in the modern political context of thinking about how do you protect the democratic institutions of the United States? Because, you know, America is more than any single president, any single Congress, any single Supreme Court. And if you look at the only things that we have in common with the founders and every generation of Americans who have come before us are the institutions of democracy and the practices and the rule of law that we agreed to with that declaration and the Constitution. That was amazing detail in your book, Raven Rock, uh, the discussions of that uh, and the removal of these uh, historical artifacts. I, that's, again, the kind of thing that uh, uh, I never knew about, and, and, and I have to be blunt. That's uh, one of the things that I loved about your book was that kind of, of detail uh, surrounding all of these kinds of plans that the government has in place for continuity of government. So – I think we'll leave it at that, uh, Garrett. I, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining us today for our podcast. Uh, again, for those that are be listening to this, I encourage you to uh, read Raven Rock. It's a wonderful read, and and check out uh, Garrett's website at GarrettGraff.com. And I must say this: I've I've read Garrett's previous books, uh, The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War, and. Uh, Angel is airborne. JFK's final flight from Dallas, and uh, and I know you have others. Uh, those were great reads, Garrett. So, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with author Garrett Graff. If you'd like to pick up a copy of his book Raven Rock, you can find him at GarrettGraff.com. We'll include a link in the show notes, along with a link to Fred Burton's new book Beirut Rules the murder of a CIA station chief, and Hezbollah's war against America. And if you're interested in learning how these kinds of conversations are still playing out today in the halls of power around the world, be sure to follow our daily analysis at Stratfor Worldview. If you're not already a Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And you can even register for free, limited access to explore more of our work. If you have a question or even an idea for a future episode of the podcast, you can drop us an email at podcast at stratfor.com. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Stratfor.